HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number four by The Legion of Dudes. We'll always be bosom buddies, friends, sisters, and pals. We'll always be bosom buddies. If life should reject you, there's me to protect you. If I say. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time, the Legion of... Dude, I will come over there and kick your robot head right off of that skinny body. And I was all like, dude, I found this triangle. And my friends were like, dude. And I was all, dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. This is how we do it. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one. And they all look just the same. And now, here's the dudes. It's eight minutes to midnight. Welcome to Half Hour Wasted Presents Who Reads the Watchmen, Issue 4. I'm Johnny M, and tonight we do not have Adam Umax, so we do not have his copy that he has written for the introduction, which we are all supposed to read every week. So we're going to wing it. We have a skeleton crew of dudes here tonight, and why don't you introduce yourself, guys? I'm Russell Latham. And I am Ken Morgan. And that's it, folks. We've had some uh, recording difficulties over the last couple of days. We had to reschedule a couple of times. We have some MIA dudes I think possibly UMAC is being detained in Baltimore for events that may have taken place. We're not exactly sure. But tonight we're going to delve into issue four of The Watchmen. And Russ is going to lead our discussion. Why don't you take it away, Russ? Alrighty. Well, after the uh, very in-depth, thought-provoking conversations that we've had for the last two episodes with the whole movie lawsuit and then the uh, political discussion, I thought we'd keep it a little light and loose this time and just kind of talk about other works that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons have, have done. I figure we can kind of go around the horn and each talk about, you know, stories that we enjoyed from either of them or, you know, things that we've read, and just kind of give some just quick initial thoughts on what we thought. So I'll go first. I haven't really read, actually, too much by Alan Moore. The only things I've really read, of course, are Watchmen, The Killing Joke, and the Superman annual he did with Dave Gibbons, The Man Who Has Everything. Um, and the, really the two, oh, and of course, um, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, how can I forget that? And that actually is my favorite, um, of all the stuff <clears throat> other than Watchmen that I've read from Alan Moore, probably, uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow is probably my favorite story. It was a two issue arc that spanned both action comics and Superman. And it was kind of the bookend for the pre-crisis Superman and just kind of finally put the capper on, uh, on that story and then led straight into the whole uh, burn revamp with the Man of Steel miniseries. But the way they just kind of wrapped everything up um, in, those, in that, in that two-parter and pretty much brought all his villains in and what they did with Luthor and Brainiac and, and how they kind of ended the, the story with kind of a wink and a nod, I thought was just a, just a really you know, great, great story. But uh, Where does Alan Moore's stuff, like some of the stuff that you just mentioned, where does that fit in time frame-wise with Watchmen? Was that what he was doing before, or is it mostly after Watchmen? Um, or is it a mix? Could be a mix, I guess. Yeah, the, the annual for the man who, who has everything was definitely before. 
because if I'm not mistaken, that was the first pairing with Moore and Gibbons was that annual. And I think that was like 83, 82, maybe? Man of Tomorrow was 86. Oh, it was 86. Uh, that was really what happened to the Man of Tomorrow was 86. Yeah. According to Comic Book DB. And I actually don't see, at least on this list, for the man who has everything. Was it Superman Annual 11, I think is what it was? It was definitely before. But yeah, for, uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow was like right around the same time. 1985, yep, annual number 11 for The Man Who Has Everything was the 1985 annual. So it was just a year before. before. It was all right around the same time as Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, pretty, it was all pretty pretty close together there. And if, if you've ever seen that Justice League episode, they did. They, they did have. an episode called for The man, man Who Has Everything, and it's very similar, you know, Mongols in it and, and the whole where he's kind of given a peek at his life, you know, what, you know how it would have been different, you know, if he stayed on Krypton and, and lived live that life it's just a just a real kind of heartwarming type story um and it was translated excellently in in the justice league cartoon they they did a really really good job um bringing that over but on the on the given side of things i I, he had a pretty long run on green lantern in the early 80s and you know i didn't get a chance to read any or look at any of that stuff that he penciled and of course Watchmen. and he also penciled a four issue miniseries in the in right around 2000 called the Vader Quest, and it was a, it was a Star Wars miniseries, and it was uh, kind of what happened right after A New Hope, where Vader is kind of, he, fi- he finds out that it was Skywalker that destroyed the Death Star, and he kind of has the revelation that he's alive and out there, and starts kind of this quest to go uh, find him and hunt him down. It kind of bridges the gap between that whole uh, New Hope and, and Empire Strikes Back, where he knows that he's looking for, for Skywalker and and Empire Strikes Back, so this kind of miniseries bridges the gap, and Gibbons uh, penciled that. It was a nice-looking book. And then, most recently, he, his stuff as writer on, and then and then some pencils on the Sinestro Corps War special, and then the penciling, or, I'm sorry, the writing on uh, the Green Lantern Corps for the Sinestro Corps War stuff, which that whole, you know, both those books, Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps, were just, just spot-on with that whole Sinestro Corps War stuff. Well, that's about it, as far as my exposure to those fine gentlemen. I've been reading the uh, Sinister Core War stuff, but I didn't even realize that that he was writing it. I didn't really look at that that closely. I was so sucked into the story, I didn't realize Alan Moore was writing that. Yeah, I'm pretty limited as well in terms of um, in terms of his work. I did read V for Vendetta. I, I didn't read it until after the movie had come out, probably till after I'd seen the movie. You know, so I went back and read that. And um, the Killing Joke is probably what really made me notice uh, the rest of his work, just his portrayal of the Joker and everything. Especially now with the, you know, with the Dark Knight movie and and uh, all the attention on the Joker. You know, to go back and read that stuff now is great. And uh, you know, I'm the guy that gets yelled at always for never having read the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Or I get yelled, uh, at, I get yelled at, at for that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those things that it, it's kind of like the Watchmen for me. It's you know I have it. It's on the shelf. It stares at me all the time. But uh, I just always pick something else to start up for some reason. But I will, especially now after really getting into Watchmen, I'll, I'll be sure to go back and check that out. I never really really looked for that because of the uh, the bad taste in my mouth left by the movie. But I've been assured that the uh, the book is very much superior to the movie. Yeah, well, that's what it, one of the things that probably made me buy the trade was hearing the disappointment over the movie. You know, I just, I kind of figured the movie was like a throwaway, you know, whatever superhero movie, but people were so upset, you know, because of how great the the stories were, the, the book version, that 
you know, I said, wow, that really must be good stuff. So I bought it, but uh, it's still there. What did you think of V for Vendetta? I liked well, it. It's another one I didn't read. I, I liked the movie. I, I really did. I just didn't haven't read the book yet. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to, again, I have to go back and, and really, now that I know what more is all about, I have to give that book a better chance. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the movie a lot. It seemed to obviously move a lot slower than the movie, um, and, and more stuff is pretty dense, which I think now I've kind of grown accustomed to. I don't know that I was as open to it when I read V for the first time. Yeah, I think I'd be the, the same way. I haven't I haven't read it, and I, I saw the movie, and it was okay. I wasn't, you know, completely blown away by it. It was all right. I, I yeah, I mean, I don't have the comparison to make with the, uh, the the movie to the book, and I'm looking forward to reading it to see how it compares. Russ, what was the name of the uh, the Star Wars story you referred to? It's called Vader's Quest. I'm looking through. I just got a, a Star Wars book, and I was looking through to see if that was in this collection. It's not. Oh uh, yeah, it was a it was a four issue mini, and I'm trying to think of when it came out. It was like right around 2000, maybe 2002. In previews this month, they're soliciting the hardcover for the Swamp Thing. Any of you guys checking that out? I don't think I'm going to go for that, but did you all see they're doing a fifth edition of the Watchmen Absolutes? Yeah, that I did see. I, th- I think I might actually try and dive into that. I've been meaning to read that run, and everybody raves about it, but I hadn't you know, I hadn't read any of the Swamp Thing stuff before, but everybody just goes on and on. So if I have a light month, I might, I might dive into that. Yeah, I, I picked up the first trade really cheap. Probably somebody was selling it because they knew they were going to pick up the hardcovers. But uh, if I get into the first trade enough, I'll probably go for that hardcover and I'll uh, I'll mail you the trade. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that in the October previews? Yes. 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 The brand new previews. Cool. Yeah, I haven't got it. I haven't got the previews yet, so I'll uh, I'll keep on the lookout for it. But yeah, if, if if I can, I try and keep my DCBS order right at a hundred bucks. So if I'm if I'm pretty close and I have a little wiggle room, I might I might do it. But um, if not, I might I might hold off. I used to do that. Now I'm trying to keep it. If I can keep it to sixty or fifty, I'm happy. I'm, I'm much happier. But so I don't yeah. think I'll be getting that one. Although I'm considering the the, the Watchmen Absolute. You know, it's seventy five bucks. But even if it's just thirty five percent, that's still going to bring it under fifty bucks for that book by itself. And I might. It's, it's so worth it, man. Having that. Having it oversized like that, because I I bought it before all the hype hit, so I've got like I think first printing absolute, maybe second printing absolute, right? And I bought it about a year ago, maybe almost a year and a half by now, and got it online. It was it was brand new, still sealed on eBay. I think I paid like thirty two something plus shipping, so I got it for like a, a really decent price. Mine's been back ordered. I ordered the absolute over the summer. I'm gonna say July. Um, and I had like 40% off at Borders, and I had a $25 gift card. So it ends up costing me like 23 bucks or something for the Absolute. But, you know, here I am nine weeks later or whatever, still back-ordered. Now that I, I've, I've seen that Walmart's having the trades for like 13 so I might even just pick up a trade so I can just kind of beat it around and, you know, lay it on and not worry about, yeah. you know, nieces and nephews spilling, you know, water on it or whatever. Yeah. yeah I picked mine up at Wild Pig back in March just on, on, a, on a whim just to think, you know, hey, I've heard good things as a movie, let me grab it. So got it half off, 10, 10 bucks. Can't beat that. I got to tell you, it blew my mind the other day, and this has been a, a uh, topic on the forum recently. I walked into my local Best Buy the other day, and there's a giant table of Watchmen trades right when you walk into Best Buy. Yeah, they're still sitting on a bunch of the Harry Potter books around here, though, so I'm sure Watchmen will be uh, will be there too. It, it, you know what though? It just, 
you know, Harry Potter's not a comic book. So No, you're right. That's it true. Just but, kinda, it just kind of blew my mind, but, you know, and it you, made me say, you know what? This movie's coming out on time. You know, I thought what you think about it, it yeah. makes sense. When, they, when we were talking yeah. about back in issue one that DC's going to be putting out 900,000 copies of that trade, well, they got to go somewhere, and 900,000 copies aren't just going to comic shops. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. I know it get a little off topic, but I think that kind of a model, if you can put 75,000 copies in Best Buy and they can sell 40,000 of them in the first six months or a year, and then, you know, extrapolate that amongst, you know, Walmart and Barnes and & Noble and, you know, all that, you know, all these places that, that don't normally sell it. Well, I guess Bar- Barnes & Noble wouldn't apply, but, but like your Walmarts and your Best Buys and some of those outlets, it may, we may, you know, see the turning of the tide a little bit. And that you know we can we can distribute this stuff or, or it can be distributed in in the mainstream market, and that it's not just going to be relegated to you know the comic book store you know on the corner in the strip mall, um, but you know help help get these things a little more you know mainstream and hopefully you know bump up the readership. The Walmart maybe I can see your point there, but like things like the Best Buy and other places like that, I mean that's only there because of because of the movie. I can see Watchmen being there. I can even see say. You know the heroes trades of the web comics being in there because it's got the TV, the media tie-in. But I can't see something like say a DMZ, a Fables, or even a Crisis doing well in say a Best Buy. So I think um, we can't overestimate the impact of this. The Walmart's important, don't get me wrong, but I think it might be a little bit too too much. Hope that suddenly comics is breaking through. It's not. It's Watchmen's only there because of the movie. Yeah, that's true. But if yep. nothing else, you know, it might be able to get. Say if every time there's a if, if if they can push the sale, if they can push the the Watchmen trades, you know, to coincide with the movie, you know, maybe then they can push Batman trades to coincide with the Batman or Iron Man trades to coincide with Iron Man, or if they can keep the cycle going where they can push some of these books with the movie. If nothing else, it might bring people to the, you know, to the hobby, so to speak. You know, okay, maybe they can't go back and get, you know, the current issue of Detective or you know or Batman or you know you know, Iron Man or, you know, Civil War or Secret Invasion or whatever at Best Buy. But if, if they get that book in their hand, they're going to be, I would think, more likely to, to, you know, seek out other material if they if they like it and think it's good. So, Yeah, another concern I have with the whole thing, and I hate to be the negative guy on this one because I think it's great that we're seeing comics of any form in, in other areas, but one of the things that really gets me is I was talking to uh, the owner of my LCS a few months ago. In fact, we had her on the show talking about this very thing. When say a 300 comes in the theater, or you know uh, V, I asked him, "Is, is there is there a, a spillover? You see people you haven't seen before coming in looking for the book?" He's like, "Oh, absolutely, all the time. We see that all the time." Well, my fear is we start seeing Watchmen in there, and then we'll see like the next Superman or the Batman or what have you coming in. People are gonna start getting trained. Oh, I want to read more about Watchmen. Well, I'll just go to Best Buy. I know they have it. And then they never set foot in the comic book store. They never get exposed to something besides what they came looking for. They never meet somebody who can say, "Oh, if you like Watchmen, you might also like." You know, whatever, and we're not really growing the business, like you know, in that way. We're not growing the readership. We're just getting people to read the comics, and then they don't have. You say if they push it in a, in a Best Buy, they're not. It's an incremental sale. They sell it that great. If they don't, then they rip the covers off and throw them away. It, it, it's 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 a wash for them. They don't care. And uh, so I don't know how much this is going to help. Don't get me wrong. People reading comics is great. Um, I, I just don't know what the lasting impact is going to be. And we have a special treat. Jim is with us. How you doing, Jim? Hello, ladies. <laughs> Fine, thanks. It's good to have you. Um, we made fun of you, Mac, earlier. You missed it, but I'm sure you'll play it back three or four times. 
I'm sure it was hilarious. <laughs> it wasn't sorry, bad. I couldn't, sorry I couldn't join in. There's always next time, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's an eternal sport. All right. All right, and, and with that, I think we're ready to uh, jump into issue four. So, Russ, why don't you take it away? All right. Well, here we are, issue four, finally, moving right along. Um, it just it, it seems like it gets faster and faster between recordings, even though it stays two weeks apart. So, issue four, um, again, we start with the cover where we've got this, you know, extrapolated or blown up image from the somewhere on the first page, usually within the first or second panel. And then in this case, we have a, a blown up, more detailed image of panel two from page one, where we see the pre-Dr. Manhattan, John Osterman, and a significant other in a photograph that's kind of tattered that we saw him pick up from the test facility in the in uh, previously. So we start off in, on page one, where John is, or Dr. Manhattan, is on Mars, sitting on a rock in the buff, as he as he pretty much will remain to the rest of the series, reflecting kind of reflecting back on you know basically his life. So this is this issue is where we kind of get the story of how Doctor Manhattan became Doctor Manhattan, and pretty much just just all about this issue. Pretty much you know solely about Doctor Manhattan. Right. The uh, the one issue was the origin of the comedian. This is the origin of Doctor Manhattan. And I just wanted to say, I know I said in one of the earlier episodes, it's very much in the storytelling style of uh, Kurt Vonnegut, where everything happens all at once. Uh, but the, you know, the person is unstuck in time. As Doctor Manhattan is like getting closer and closer to godhood, time seems to have less and less meaning for him. Yeah. At first, the first time I read this. I guess I wasn't sure whether he was just reminiscing or he was actually saying, you know, I, I don't know whether to take it literally or not, which then I think as you move on, obviously he's everywhere at one time. But I think the first time it can be mistaken for he's kind of remembering each thing. Uh, no, I think I think he has a very clear sense of where he is in time. This entire issue, the way I read it is, there is a presence to this issue. There's a point where he's... You know, as he's sitting on the rock and as he's walking away, that's the present. Because he always refers to something that happens in the past and the future as to when it happened. Twelve seconds in time, I dropped this photograph. Ten seconds now. Or, you know, what date is when he's having a fight with Janie? Or what what date is it is when he um, is going to uh, to break break up with, with Janie? Or, you know, in 115 minutes, I'll be standing on the balcony watching meters. But there is a present. There's a moment that he know he he's in. The present is is as he's walking across Mars from sitting on this rock until he's on the balcony. That's this path he's on. Everything else, he knows exactly to the to the second when things happen before or after what he's going to be talking about. So there's definitely a present, but he's just seen everything at once. It just seems like exactly what you were saying. He just he sees all the time happening, but he sees his place in it as well. One interesting thing. I thought the board, it's the middle middle panel on the on the left, uh, the board where all the pictures are hung. I thought at this point I've, I've trained myself with this book that nothing is a coincidence, nothing is a throw-in, like everything means something. So I googled strangeness and charm, which is part of the saying that's um, written on the board where the pictures are hung. Apparently there's something called a quark. Has anybody ever heard of that? Q-U-A-R-K? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think uh, DeFixer uh, made the same point on the uh, forums, actually. I think he did. Uh, from the last issue, that uh, there are different kinds of quarks. Yeah, I didn't. I had never heard of it before. I'm looking at the wiki page right now. It's a, 
a particle which interacts via the strong force. It is one of the two basic constituents of matter, the other being the lepton. But uh, long story short, I guess there are six different types, and one of them is charm and one of them is strange. Those are the names of them. So, you know, more is bringing us into the whole particle and force world, you know, without probably a lot of people knowing it. I didn't know it anyway. No, I, wouldn't, I didn't catch that at all. Good catch. Good find. This is like Lost, yeah. the TV show for me. Anything that pops up on the screen in that show, I go and hit Google, and now the book is, like, becoming the same thing for me. I just assume that everything means something else. And, of course, sometimes it's nothing, but... Every once in a while, you pull up a nice uh, Easter egg. I, see, I think you had the key words there. Nothing is, nothing is accidental in this book. Everything means something. Right. I, I just love the last panel, the first page. Uh, all we ever see of stars are their old photographs. Looking yeah. at an old photograph of him before he became Dr. Manhattan. And that brings up a good point. We'll pretty much see this almost at the last panel on every page, that what's being said in the, in the, in the balloon directly has a double meaning to what we're seeing in the in the actual panel itself right you're right yeah and let me ask you guys this something i just noticed the first top middle there are footprints by the picture and he you know he doesn't actually walk away from the picture until the bottom of the page okay we're seeing we're seeing that moment that's 12 seconds in the future exactly right so it okay so it's actually like it's happened already and we're going to see that a lot in this book. When, you know, there'll be moments that happened 20 years in the past. There'll be moments that happened, you know, hours into the future. We'll see that that's what those frames are, and that's what perfect case of that. Huh. That's what will happen in, in, as he says, 10 seconds. And we move on to page two, and we get the actual title for this episode, which is called Watchmaker, which is very relevant um, to this particular issue. And we see one of the things you'll notice, too, kind of like the picture, where the picture appears you know, both before and after this and throughout this issue, we see this panel on, if you look on page two, the fourth panel, second one from the, from the top, we see this panel of, of the, you know, the open, you know, watch sprockets and the tool and the hand going, going through the pieces parts. We see this panel in different, you know, points of, of folk, uh, of view throughout the, the entire book. Sometimes we're a little closer up, sometimes we're a little further back, but this panel keeps recurring, um, throughout the rest of this issue. Hey, do you think the creators of Heroes uh, were fans of The Watchmen? Siler? Doesn't he have, like, the exact same scene with his father and starting out as a watchmaker and stuff he's like a watchmaker. that? Oh, yeah. He's a watchmaker. He knows how things work. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Well, given that, you know, Jeff Loeb is, you know, has a hand in Heroes and Tim Sale, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't doubt that a bit. I think the cool thing about the uh, the whole scene with his father and the watch and the tools and whatnot is the quote at the end of the book uh, from Albert Einstein, the release of atom power has changed everything except our way of thinking. The solution to this problem uh, lies in the heart of mankind. If I had only known, I should have become a watchmaker. And John Osterman is kind of doing the opposite instead of... Uh, you know, Einstein saying instead of doing you know nuclear physics, he should have become a watchmaker. John Osterman is a watchmaker, and he's moving into nuclear physics. Right, it's kind of a you know, reverse parallel. And the whole, you know, the, the, this kind of sets it up to where, you know, we, you know, it's, like I said, it's August seventh, nineteen forty-five. The bomb pretty much changed everything. I mean, it it it, it changed John's life. It changed his father's life. He, you know, once the bomb was dropped, it just became, you know. Who needs to be worried about, you know, 
watchmakers and, you know, these mundane, you know, physical tasks. The future is in science and physics and, um, and this whole, you know, new type of technology. And, you know, you shouldn't be wasting your time with, you know, such a menial task. But as we're asked later on, is it the bomb's fault? Is it his father's fault? Whose fault is it that who's responsible for Dr. Manhattan? And that's that exact thought is going to be a, a big factor. Just, uh, I'm just noticing one more, one more thing. <laughs> if you guys go back to page one, do you notice the bright yellow star that's in, like, every panel? Yeah. And then, you know, even on page two, it's just funny how it's at every angle. It's behind him. It's on the side of him. It's next to his hand when he drops the picture. It's in front of him. You know, I don't know. Again, it's easy to read too much into this stuff, but it's almost like he's everywhere. You know, from every angle, you're getting the shot of this star. I, I just thought that was the sun, actually. Well, even even so, oh yeah, you know how it's it, it's it's in front of him. You know, it's behind him in the middle panel on page one. It's in front of him. It, it's right next to his hand when he drops the picture a couple of times. Then it's behind him again. You know, it just seems like it's almost rotating around him rather than. It's almost like he's at the center. Right. That's that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Like everything's revolving around him, not the other way around. The image of the cogs falling as his father throws him out the windows, another one that's going to be repeated a couple times. You know, just kind of what could have been being thrown away, but also what's going to happen to him, what he's going to build later on at the end of the issue. Right. I just noticed that in the middle of um, page three on the bottom that the tower or whatever you want to call it is already built. I never noticed that before. Yep. Again, he's talking. Right, right. Another one of those future scenes. Yeah, I get it. I I I never never saw it. I never noticed it. I didn't. I didn't catch that either. My eyes, I guess, were too focused on the, the meteor storm. Yeah, you're focused on the meteor shower. But on my first read-through, I missed it as well. And then as I read it again, you know, pretty close together, I saw, I'm like, oh, that's that's what what he's going to build. Because without the context of knowing it, I didn't know what that was. Well, it's funny, too, because he's, he's it's like he's reluctant to want to take the path, this path that his father is basically forcing him on. You know, he's he's basically following in his father's footsteps. And well, he's what time. about seventeen, eighteen years old at this point, with with yeah. his father. You know, like many boys of young men of the age, you know, you you do what your father did. You grow up to do what your father did, and he was going to be no different. But you know, here his father realizes that no, there's that that's no future for his son. This is the future, and basically forces his hand, makes a choice for him. But until then, he was going to do what every good son did and to take over the family business, so to speak. It fits in real well with the whole motif of time and things falling apart as well. I mean, like you said, Ken, we'll see the same image again all through the rest of the book. Well, Professor Einstein says that time differs from place to place. Can you imagine? If time is not true, what purpose have watchmakers? And for, for Dr. Manhattan, time has no purpose. As we find later, though, this is the skill of, of him being able to put together watches from nothing that's, that allows him to put himself back together after the uh, incident. It was, and like many other things with Dr. Manhattan that we've read so far, it's, it's an exercise, it's a procedure. There's nothing, nothing um, unusual about it to him. He's like, I just need to put myself back together. It just seems so normal. Of course, that's what I would do. I just need to put myself back together, just like I would put back together this watch. Or why I would be continue to work while I'm making love to you, and while I'm going to be two people doing that, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter to him at all. It's a it's a a clinical test, an issue for him. I think we see a lot more uh, emotion in the earlier Doctor Manhattan too. Well, I mean, we'll get to it as we get to it. But yeah. Then we do in the uh, present day, quote unquote, Doctor Manhattan, who almost seems like detached as he's looking at his own life. Do you guys take some of what he's 
you know, when we get the actual Dr. Manhattan narration, that his speech pattern is almost, is, does it remind you at all like Rorschach, where he's kind of just, it's like, this, again, the stream of consciousness, almost just kind of like running things together? Yeah, I think it it's definitely running together. It's definitely like run-ons, thoughts. Well, I mean, about, for about 10 years, all he's done is, is learn, is be educated, is, you know, basically just go to school. So, I mean, he's finally just getting into uh, the real world. In fact, where's the line here? Um, other people seem to make all my moves for me. You know, he hasn't really done anything or thought anything for himself. It's just been a series of tasks until this point. And then we see on page four, where he first shows up at, at Gila Flats to take his, his first physicist job. And they talk about how he heard Einstein lecture. Right. You I get the line. Are they talking about Einstein when he says, uh, heard he argued with his wife, something like Yeah, yeah. Here, right. A guy like that, a genius, even he couldn't figure women which is kind of foreshadowing to uh, some of what's go- what goes on with Dr. Manhattan. And then Osterman's saying, uh, well, I guess he's just human like everyone else. I mean, that's really ironic, considering right. what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Umack. Stop. Why did you vote me out last episode, jerks? <laughs> Answer for your sins, Judgment Day, right now. What is your deal? The Baltimore police told us to. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> what's up, man? How you guys doing? We're doing all right. Doing? We're cranking it out. Awesome. That's good to hear. Where are you at in the book so I can jump in? Page, Page four. four. Page four. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, wow. What did you do? Did we have another half-hour discussion of the lawsuit? <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the uh, way, Rush, you killed last episode. Awesome job. Okay. All right. I'll jump in. Go for it, guys. We were just saying how um, it was ironic that... Um, John was talking about Einstein's problems with women and he's saying that he guess he's just human like everybody else, which is pretty much what Dr. Manhattan is not or becomes anyway. Yeah, I'll drink that Kool-Aid. It's, it's this w- weird distance. And, you know, one of the problems that I have with Dr. Manhattan as a character is like, uh, you know, like you have these characters that come into fiction and, and stuff like that that are, you know what I mean when I say more machine than man? Like there was an episode of Galactica where the guy who took over the crew of Battlestar Galactica was one of the chief engineers, and he became more... Uh, you're not going to spoil Galactica now, are you? No. He became captain of the ship, but it's like he couldn't do the job of a captain because his mind was, you know, with tinkering, and he wasn't a, a, a ship captain, you know what I mean? And I think Manhattan suffers from that same kind of personality syndrome because he's so distant that... And I could only imagine... I could only imagine this is on purpose because he's so distant from the reader that I don't even like him. <laughs> and I know we get the backstory here, but I still don't like him. Right. But I know that's by design because Watchmen is a book that, and I think we've seen this proven with every panel because we've talked about every single panel, is that whatever Moore or Gibbons is trying to tell you and convey to you in each panel, we always get it. There's nothing that's obscure or while the emotions themselves might be obscure, it's like you always know where you stand with the characters. I actually, uh, I, want to, I want to be uh, Dr. Manhattan. I, I idolize that guy. That guy gets more action than anybody who I've ever known. He gets some, he gets some good, good stuff. I <laughs> think they have nudist colonies in Pennsylvania. <laughs> All right, thanks for coming, Adam. We'll check you out next time. <laughs> All right, see you later, jerks. <laughs> Uh, mute. Where's the mute? She buys him a beer. That's a big 
panel that we'll see repeated a bunch of times, passing the cold beer. That's his. Yeah. That that will be his last thought, I believe, as a as a man. And this this gets on page five at, at on the third panel there where he says, "Oh, then," or Janie says, "Oh, the new guy. You're replacing Hank Meadows, right?" And he says, "I am, and I guess so, Hank. Hank died last fall, some kind of tumor." And here, to me, this this foreshadows what's going to happen with all of these characters. You know, when when they when they talk about every, you know Janie having cancer and all these other you know folks associated with him dying. If you think about it, it all it probably all comes back to this research. Facility. It's it's I mean, the base. It's not him. It's not him. It's what they did for you know twenty thirty years. You know, working on all these crazy you know nuclear experiments right after you know r- during the whole fifties and sixties. Do we get an idea of what Janie does at the space? Is she a researcher? Is she you know administrative staff? You know, do, what what does she do there? Wally, he's he's an assistant, so he's probably around the machinery and and the experiments a, a lot closer, which also explains why. He he's getting he's going to die of cancer so young compared to you know Janie when when she's finally diagnosed. I'm just wondering if she's not in direct contact with it. it that would explain why it takes much later for it to affect her. If it is from the base and not from him. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think we ever get a get a a clear picture of what she does. I wonder if she's almost like a Betty Ross, you know, kind of in the in the Silver Age Hulk, or she's you know son slash daughter of you know, somebody important at the base or, or, like you said, works in some kind of administrative capacity. John, didn't you say that you had some background in astronomy? Yes, actually. It has something to do with Uranus. Oh, I was just going to say you're pretty good at taking up space, that's all. <laughs> oh, then forget what I just said. <laughs> no, I think, the, I think the panel with the beer is, you know, it's not just like the last time he was human, right? Because he makes kind of an unhuman decision, almost like a self, I don't know, like a self-hating decision to kind of jump into the chamber, right? And a few a few pages later, but, you know, with the beer and then with her playing footsies with him on page seven, that's the last time maybe someone was a real human to him. And what I mean is, you know, affection-wise. Well, I, mean, I can't say it was slow. It was, it was, you know, a rash or bonehead decision for him to go in the chamber. He was going to get his coat. He had no idea it was about to launch an experiment that he'd be trapped in there and potentially never see anybody again. Yeah, I'd leave the coat. Well, don't you think that's kind of subconscious, though, that, you know, maybe that that's what, I don't know, maybe I read too much into that. Well, what what struck me as far as we talked before about how, you know, he can see all bits of time. And obviously, as... Um, as Dr. Manhattan, he can remember back to all these moments when he was human. But even as a human, he's getting little bits of deja vu. You know, as we see him walking into the bar, and then in the next panel, this is on page five, we see from the same perspective shot him walking into the bar as Dr. Manhattan when it's in ruins. It's the same perspective, but he's getting deja, uh, deja vu. He, he's, he's sensing, wait a minute, this is familiar to me. He's remembering, on some level, what's going to happen in 20-some 20, 20 years, in 30 years. So there is, he's already seen, he's feeling what's, what's to become. So if he can see everything that happens at all time and can't change what's going to happen, then maybe it is preordained that he's supposed to go into that chamber and nothing can be done to stop it. And I don't mean that as like a point of no return or an intentional decision on his part. I just mean that, you know, just on a subconscious level, taking fate and destiny completely out of this equation, that maybe that factored into it somewhere. Well, it was never really explained why he would even have his code in there to begin with to leave it there. You know, I really, that, that's the one little weak spot I, I found in the thing is like, well, why, why would it even be in there? Well, I know that, like, sometimes when I get lazy and don't want to do laundry, I'll just put my wet socks in the microwave. You know, that'll dry them off. <laughs> don't you ever watch Uncle Buck when John Candy put all the kids' underwear in the microwave? Yes, and get the tongs out to pick them up. Oh. Wow. Also, giant pancakes. Hard to argue with. 
Aren't you glad I'm back? So glad. Yeah. So did you get any good sketches? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we see on the bottom of page five, this is, again, this panel that keeps popping up. It's the same, exact same panel on the bottom of uh, page one of the of the photograph. And then, again, we get the the you know, what's being said on panel parallels to what, you know, we're seeing um, in the panel itself. The other thing we, we see, too, or we get from, from page five is kind of the timeline of how long he was with Janie Slater. And we get, you know, pretty much he arrives at Gila Flats in 1955, and then he, you know, he, you know in, in his kind of stream of consciousness speak, you know, he says it's 1966, and she's packing tearful, careless with anger. So... From here, we kind of get the, the timeline pieced together that he was with her from, you know, 1959 to 1966. So he was only with her for seven years. Yeah. So it's, fun, it's funny, some, you know, in this book, a lot of the timeline stuff, because of the way the story is told in, you know, flash, you know, this, the main story moves forward, and then we hear we see things in flashbacks from different perspectives, how you, you, you have to sometimes piece together, you know, when things happen and how, you know, the duration um, you know, from what's going on. I do like the part here where he goes, uh, it seems to happen a lot. Other people always seem to make my moves for me. And then the next, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm going on a Johnny M thing here where I'm going a little bit too far, but the two hands that are almost touching, uh, kind of like the two hands on the clock, almost touching. I mean, we do have the big yellow background there, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. the two hands almost touching the way the, the hands on the nuclear clock do that are used in the back covers. Yeah. Right. And then the, yeah, like you said, the yellow background. Then on page six, we finally get to the to the panel where the actual picture that we've been seeing for a few issues now is actually taken. Just by chance, they weren't even technically a couple at that point. They just happened to get it, you know. Well, I say by chance. Nothing, nothing with Doctor Manhattan is by chance. <laughs> and uh, again, something that probably is not a uh, um, a mistake here in the center panel. Um, a fat man steps on her. Uh, uh, watch and destroys it. Weren't the um, the first nuclear bombs called Fat Man and Little Boy? Fat Man and Little Boy, exactly. And I think this plays later when we see the picture of the watch that they find at the Hiroshima blast site. Uh, a fat man, you know, stepped on that watch too. Oh my gosh, you're right. I didn't even think of that. Oh yeah. Wow. So in other words, the nuclear bombs are going to cause the end of the world, aka midnight. Yeah. Hey, I wasn't here for the first couple pages. Did you guys make the um, uh, the parallel between? Dr. Manhattan as, like, a, a watch um, repairman and Siler from Heroes. Yes. A, yes. Okay. Yes. And just to continue on the, um, you know, current stuff that's borrowing from Watchmen, I know most of you guys watch Lost. You know the picture that Desmond has? I was going to say. Yeah. Him and, uh, what's her name Penny. on the show? Penny, right. Penny. It's like an exact shot, the picture that's taken here of the two of them, you know, enjoying themselves. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's by the water in the... Uh, and lost as well. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of what he holds on to as a recurring theme, just, you know, just like here. And again, there's a lot of comic influences on that shit. Didn't Brian K. Didn't Brian, Brian K. Vaughn write for Lost, didn't he? Or did yep. Not to mention the time, the time travel angle of, uh, of that show, which is hurts my brain every time I watch it. <laughs> I really like the narration um, from 5 to 6 to 7 because you get that idea that Dr. Manhattan is pretty much omnipotent because of how the narration shifts from the other issues we've read so far. Um, I cross the square to the intrinsic field center. My coat's 
inside the chest chamber. I can't. It's, he's writing actively. Excuse me. He's speaking actively. The accident is almost upon me now. And I know that you can look at that as, like, from a grammatical standpoint, as past tense. But I almost, he's saying this, like, it is upon me now. You know, I mean, there's there's a part, uh, it's like, um, it's also present tense, too. And I think that's amazing because if he kind of has that infinity loop of how he can see things like Ken was talking about, then he's not just recollecting it, he's also experiencing it while he's recollecting it. Yeah, the shift in tenses at the beginning of page 7, we go from we've been, which would be uh, past, to uh, present tense, where he seems like he's experiencing the accident in real time. This is really slick. I, I really like that. And then as we see him kind of go into the test chamber, you know, he, he goes in for the watch. So he starts off as a watchmaker who turns into a physicist. And it turns out that, you know, his ability to be a watchmaker and a physicist became his undoing. You know, if he if he wasn't a watchmaker and he was something else, you know, something more, you know, pro- maybe productive or, or in one of the other sciences to, to begin with, he would have never become a physicist. Yet, if he had just become a physicist without being a watchmaker, he probably would have never found himself in this position to begin with to, to have take a broken watch and fix it and for it to end up in the chamber. So it's almost like these two things, again, getting back to the Einstein thing where, you know, he said it in reverse of, you know, if, I, if I'd known what I know now, I would have been a watchmaker. Now we get, you know, we get John as I started as a watchmaker, turned into a physicist, and it was basically both of them together that got me to the point you know, or got him to the point where, you know, he turns into this godlike, omnipotent being. Right, and and you can look at it in two ways. You can say those things had to be specifically that way for this to happen, or you could say no matter what he did, he was getting to this point. You know, it, it could if he wasn't a watchmaker, maybe he would have been, you know, some a jeweler in the past, and she would have broken a necklace then. You know, it gives you the idea that this was happening. I dig the uh, exploding man skeleton on page eight. What do you What do you think that page goes for, Adam? Um, <laughs> that goes for something fierce. I'll put it to you like that. That's that's ridiculous, man. Um, I actually got a chance at Baltimore this weekend to talk to Albert Moy and um, Albert Moy of AlbertMoyArt.com. I know a lot of um, the fans from Comic Art fans um, are familiar with Albert. Um, we'll be talking, I hope, in an upcoming episode for a discussion topic. Um, I got the whole story of how Watchmen was bought and sold on an art level from Albert, and it is amazing. It is amazing, and I'll give you a heads up. When Watchmen originally went on sale, each page was going for 50 bucks straight. Wow. That, that does. And it didn't sell initially <laughs> because of the Black Freighter pages. Nobody wanted to um, – art dealers in America – didn't want to buy this pirate story because they didn't know the success of it. Because even though all the pages were done, only issue one came out. And more, and more or less from what I got from it was that everyone had their fair share <laughs> to buy in, and um, Albert came into possession of it much, much later. So it was really neat to talk to him. Okay, but so right now... A right story now, for another time, you know? Go ahead, Ken. I'll say right now, I, I am going to, in the future, invent a time machine... So I can come back in time to buy Watchmen pages at 50 bucks a piece to give them to my present-day 2008 self to al- allow them to appreciate so I can then sell them so I can build a time machine so I can go back and you know get Watchmen pages. So that's so net. right now, after coming up with that, I should become rich any moment now. All right, you do that and drop me off in 1990, and I'll just take the Reds to sweep the A's in the World Series, and we'll call it even. All right. 
How about we just push John into a uh, telekinetic chamber and hope he gets powers? That'd be awesome. Well, I tried putting a spider in my microwave, but that didn't give me powers. <laughs> Got you a dirty microwave. Yeah. And a ticked-off wife. Yep. No, no, she got a new microwave, so it all worked out. <laughs> Dirty microwave? I don't even know what that sounds like. <laughs> Some strange creation, I'm sure, but that sounds like um, a mixed drink or something. I don't know. Is that like the um, Arnold, Arnold Palmer? <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Well, speaking of leaving things in the microwave too long, we see on page eight what happens to John when he's caught in the intrinsic field uh, generator. The light is taking me to pieces. That's what happened to the other 14 test blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they, they, we, do we, we see that, that scene in briefly in the trailer, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of the most memorable panels in the whole book. I like how on that next page on 9, they talk you through that he's, like, slowly figuring out how to put himself back together. And, you know, they, they go back to that scene with the watch being apart. You know, it's all the it's all the same to him. He can figure out how to put the watch back together. He can figure out how to put himself back together. And apparently, it's not pleasant. You know, he it's painful to him. He's feeling the, the pain of this. You know, we see in the bottom of nine, the middle panel, a skeleton, a partially muscled skeleton, stands by the perimeter fence and screams for thirty seconds before vanishing. That's wild. Um, I just looked up this page on Comic Art Fans. Um, this uh, page eight with the Dr. Manhattan splash belongs to a guy named Charlie Williamson. So uh, I think we should email him, ask him about the page and how he found it. So uh, we'll try that for next issue, folks. Give old Charlie a ring. Basically, this process took three months. So it started. It happened in August of 59, which which is kind of interesting. It happened in August because August was the same month in 45 where the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But then it takes him until November, you know, before he you know, fully integrates himself. I think the part on the top of page nine is pretty cool, too, where he says uh, that the picture of him and Janie is the only photograph of him anyone has. Um, it just goes to uh, put more weight to the fact that he's holding on to that photograph on Mars and kind of letting go as he lets go of his humanity. The other thing we see, too, is that the middle, the, the top middle panel where the guys are talking about um, Castro taking over Cuba, you know, we, we, we see that so far, you know, so far, the Watchmen world and our world—I mean, from a, from a political standpoint or from a from a historical standpoint, other than the fact that there were a couple team or a team of costume adventurers—is that it's pretty much the same. I mean, you know, the the, the war evolved the same way. You know, the, the same you know presidents are, are in place. Everything is is moving along just as it it does in the real world. And then we'll kind of come to that point later in the issue where we you know, really see that, you know, this is the diverging period. You know, yeah. when this happens, this is this is the event that causes history to kind of splinter from what, you know, we know it as, you know, real versus, you know, what's going on in the book where, where things really start to take a turn to be different. Yeah, I was saying, saying last issue, this, as you said, this is, it's Dr. Manhattan's existence. It's his presence. It's his uh, being revealed to the world where everything changes. From the mundane of having electric cars and rather than gas car gasoline cars to wars literally changing presidents changing the rules. Then of course we get the uh, page ten, another you know, pretty stark image there of full frontal Mister or Doctor Manhattan there. <laughs> Marvelous! I, I was looking on the net today, and they were they had one of the um, one of the guys that was working, I guess one of the effects guys that was working on on the movie, and they were talking about how they filmed 
Billy Crudup as Dr. Manhattan, and he wore, he basically had to wear a, mo a motion capture suit throughout the whole thing, but they actually put a bunch of blue LEDs all over the suit to capture the glow. So that way, when he's interacting with people, they get a more natural glow effect on them, as opposed to having to CG all that all that stuff in, you know, where normally that's, something... That's very clever. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then they, they wired, they rigged the thing up so they could, you know, increase and decrease the intensity of the light as, as need be. So that's just something as we watch the movie to know that whenever we see a Dr. Manhattan glow reflecting off somebody, that's natural and not, not CG. Then we see on page 11, you know, how he has, you know, starting off, he, he wears clothes. You know, even just kind of lounging around the house, he starts off with, you know, kind of a tank top and pants and shoes. And, and you know, we'll see how, as, as the book progresses, you know, from historically, that he goes from wearing, a, you know, fully clothed to a little less clothed, a little less clothed, and then pretty much by the end he's just running around naked. Which, if you think about it, is almost the reverse of how we are in, in, in life. You start off naked, and, you know, when you're four years old, you want to run around the house with no clothes on all the time, to, you know, running around, you know, in a pair of shorts or whatever, and then, you know, eventually you realize that you can't run around naked all the time. I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> Next week, the video conference. <laughs> Ooh, I think I'm going to be out next week. Unstick him. <laughs> that panel in the middle on the bottom of uh, 11, I'm just flipping back uh, to a previous chapter. It's very close to the panel where John is attempting to make love to Laurie. Laurie. And, you know, he's multiplied himself. Yep. Yeah, this is kind of that thing, too, where they say exactly the opposite of what's actually happening, you know. If if there is a God, um, I'm not him. I'm still the same person. Nothing's changed. I still want you. I'll always want you, which is exactly the opposite of what's really going on. Well, he even acknowledged it. You know, as I lie, I hear her shouting at me in 1963, sobbing in 66. Again, he already knows that it's not true, and he'll go through the same thing with Lori as well. Exactly. Then what do you guys, if, moving on to page 12, what do you guys make of the him putting the symbol uh, the high, you know basically his his symbol is going to be that of the hydrogen atom is it i mean simplicity is it is it the whole it's the you know the first element on the periodic table well i mean the hydrogen atom is uh you know what they're trying to split it's what they're trying to that's the symbol of atomic power that's why he 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 respects it so much this you know atomic symbol that's is meaningless as he says but he he's more appeasing his Government handlers, if, if you have to have something here, then put this, and I'll respect that. But it definitely is, is, means something. It's a symbol of his power. It's funny when he's got that, you know, the black getup with the belt and the and the cap, you know, on his head. It, it's almost like he looks like a, you know, they're trying to, to make him out to be or introduce him as a superhero, and he almost looks like a, you know, cat burglar. That's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to make him into the superhero. Yeah, yeah he kind of looks like the Phantom. Yeah, because the way his eyes are, it's almost like that little mask. You know, his eyes almost make a natural mask um, on his face. I also like how the logo he chooses is uh, reminiscent, again, of the midnight clock. Uh, we have the, the one dot at the midnight position. Oh, yeah. And then again, on the, the last panel on that page, we get the, the, the same, you know, same thing going on. It says, it's all getting out of my hands as he, you know, as, as he reaches that point in time where the picture is, is falling out of his hands. So what's going on reflecting what we're seeing. We may have talked about this before. Did anybody read the uh, recent Superman Beyond in 3D from yeah. Final Crisis? The character of Captain Adam in 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 that book. Mm -hmm. Alan it, Adam. It's it's basically uh, an analog of it's uh, 
Dr. Manhattan, just the uh, the atom is just, I think, shifted 90 degrees. He's got hair. Did he have hair? I don't remember that. Yeah, I think he's got hair that's all slipped back. Not a lot. Yep. It's cut, cropped short like, uh, like Captain see. Adam. At first I saw him, I thought he was more of a uh, of Captain Adam from the DC Universe, but then as you look closer and you see the symbol on his head, you realize it's definitely Dr. Manhattan they're trying to work with. Not, not that Dr. Manhattan isn't just a, uh, a bit of Captain Adam and him, too. And then moving on to page 13 where they kind of go public with Dr. Manhattan and we kind of see, you know, what he can do and, you know, the beginnings of what his powers are. And then when we get, then they, they decide they're going to interview the other costumed adventurers to kind of get their opinion. And you could tell that Captain Metropolis is like very, very uncomfortable. He's nervous. He doesn't know what to think of this. Yeah, he's pulling on his collar and he just, his whole facial expression. Is and Sally's just happy to have attention again, I think. <laughs> and then Sally Jupiter is just like, yeah, you know, just skeptic. Just kind of like, yeah, I believe it when I see it. You know, she doesn't really take much to it, you know, which is kind of, you know, again, back to her personality, this this carefree, you know, kind of, you know, whatever, whatever goes kind of attitude that she has. So she figures, and if it's real, fine. If not, you know, it doesn't really affect her one way or the other. And then Janie Slater, you know, talks about his fashion sense and says, you've arrived, which is true on many, many, many levels. The caption box on the next page is just one of my favorites in the whole comic. Now it's June, a charity event with several costumed adventurers attending, friendly middle-aged men who like to dress up. I have nothing in common with them. <laughs> and that's a, a line, Russ, where I would definitely say that he sounds like Rorschach. I could see Rorschach saying that. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the banner, this is a reference to the Indian famine. Um, more or less fundraiser from the Red Cross, and this was right before the Night Owl One's retirement, which was talked about in the last issue. Yeah, and then we'll explore it a little more. Yeah, we'll see that on the next page. Yeah, the middle panel on that on that page on fourteen, you you see how he's already or he's been out of touch with humanity, as he says, the morality of my activity escapes me as he from, you know, a couple of feet away, blow someone's head off with a thought. I think it's interesting that he's pointing at um, the guy, too, because really Dr. Manhattan doesn't have to emote or he doesn't have to, uh, you know, move around for these things to happen. He kind of goes through the motions. He doesn't have to. But I almost look at him, you know, and you, we see him in the trailer doing this, too. Um, he's just pointing at things and things are exploding. I really look at this as like uh, – some kind of indictment or like accusation, like in other words, like you are not beneath me, but it's definitely a power play. It's definitely a power play. I think um, it, whether it's 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 subconscious on his part or not, but he's he, he appreciates the power of of you know picking his target, pointing at him, and saying you, you know, you, it, you know, and, and dispatching him like that. Not so much to the victim, but to everyone around him. To, they clearly get the message that you know, Doctor Manhattan's here. He's to be feared. And plus, everybody's going to be a victim to Dr. Manhattan eventually as the story goes um, through here based on his decisions. And the other thing is, how cool is it that Bearded Spock is fighting him on the middle of page 14, too? That's right out of Mirror Mirror. I'm guessing that's Moloch? It's Moloch, yeah. Oh, your agonizer, Mr. Kyle. And I noticed that the club, I guess, is named Dante's, which you can kind of see behind the caption, Mm -hmm. who wrote the Divine Comedy, which is about hell, and we see a lot of red... And it's not the first time that hell has popped up in this book. Nope. Then we move forward to, to meeting Kennedy in 61. And, no, you know, just again, like he knew right then and there that, you know, two years later he's going to be assassinated. So, again, we, you know, just this whole, he knows exactly, you know, what's going on, when it's going on, and either can or won't stop it. Then we get this exchange on 15 where 
Hollis is is talking to to Doctor Manhattan, and he talks. To, he's he's just gotten some award, and he's also talking about his retirement and what he's going to do. And you know, it's almost like he sounds. You know, you you look on the fourth panel on page fifteen, and you know, where he talks about he's going to write his autobiography. He's going to open his own garage. You know, he's going to fix cars, and you know, looks so happy and hopeful that you know he's going to you know sad on the one hand that he's leaving this this life behind but happy on the other hand of what of you know the life he's going to lead you know we see we see the the joy in his eyes and then you know basically his bubbles completely burst you know when manhattan tells him oh yeah you know the the new electric cars will be simpler and and hollis is like you know what are you talking about and then he explains how you know he's 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 going to mass produce this lithium to make the batteries and again we get this whole you know obsolete models a specialty kind of thing. And because of that, it's also a, an electric limousine that will carry Kennedy uh, through Dallas. 18 months later, 18 months away, an electric limousine is pulling into Dealey Plaza. And that's when Janie uh, finds out that John knew all along that was going to happen. And that's when they fight when the earrings arrive. I think this is the first time that he clues us in about not being able to prevent the future. It's already happened. And she can't accept it. Yeah. She can't believe that, you know, she doesn't see it that... He knows the future. She does, she does she believe that he's controlling her? You know, she's like, I'll, just like that, like I'm a puppet. You know how everything in this world fits together except people. And then, sure enough, you know, moments later, you know, she, he's he's proven right, and the earrings arrive, and they, off camera, apparently make love. You know, again, we see where he says something's going to happen, and even though other people know that it's going to happen and could, you know, conceivably make the choice for it not to happen, and then it happens anyway. So, again, we get back to the whole... You know, is it happening because it's meant to happen? There's nothing you can do to stop it, or you know what, what's going on. I was just going to say this is where we first see Wally Weaver too, who's uh, Doctor Manhattan's pal. I guess he's like Jimmy Olsen uh, is to Superman, who uh, Doug Roth accuses uh, Doctor Manhattan in the previous issue of giving cancer. This isn't the to. first time we see him, isn't it? I no, we it saw, is. no, we see him at the beginning oh. when he first arrives at the base. He's the one who shows him around. Yeah, he's oh, I'm the sorry. research assistant guy. Well, you can see he's clearly he's still part of his life. He's still there. In fact, they're still living at the base at this point. The uh, the painting that John is looking at on page 16, it's got the melting clock on it. Yes, it does. I didn't see that. That's called The Persistence right. of Memory by Salvador Dali. And there's lots of time pieces in it that are all drooping or melting or kind of in weird positions, which is definitely significant in terms of the story. Right, suggesting that time is not only malleable, but... Time is all-encompassing, too. Then on 17, we get the, the first meeting of the crime busters. We're seeing it this time from Dr. Manhattan's point of view and also Janie's reaction to him eyeing up Laurie, the 16-year-old Laurie, chasing jailbait, as she accuses him. <laughs> it's interesting that, like, as he's losing his humanity, when the, when the first, the, one of the final human uh, parts of him is, you know, wanting hot babes. Hey, I told you, Dr. Manhattan gets some good action. And then again, we see him dress, you know, again, just in, you know, almost like a... In less, like though. A, he previously yeah. said earlier about how he's uh, not wearing all the costume anymore. In fact, it's yeah. the same page, the beginning of that page. It's 1964, I'm informing the Pentagon that I'll no longer be wearing the whole of my costume. Yeah, and then we see, you know, as time goes by, it, it gets less and less and less. Also notice uh, Lori's wearing the same earrings that Janie was wearing, and then the next page we'll find out that she's basically, when she leaves, she throws the earrings back at him, which she apparently then re-gifts to Lori. And then we got, you know, all these people that are, you know, he, he refers to them 
you know, I'm in a room of people wearing disguises. He doesn't refer to them as heroes or, you know, superheroes or crime fighters or anything. He just has people wearing disguises. You know, almost like he sees them as, you know, what they're doing is in- insignificant. Yeah, he does it again on 17, the costumed people, he calls them. And then again, we, we get that flash from, you know, on the on the third panel there, you know, the flash back to what we saw in the earlier issue of him putting his hands on, on Lori. And, and like so many of these flashbacks, it's not just similar. It's, it's the exact same panel, the exact same shot. And it's kind of funny that, you know, it's almost like to him, you know, she's, Janie makes a comment, you know, that she's just a girl and he's, she's so young. But it's almost like at this point, it, that doesn't matter to him because he knows that, you know, he's going to be with her when she's older. You know, it, it's almost like it has, you know, the whole age um, thing really has no relevance because he knows that he's going to be with her when she's older as well as younger. So it just, it's just funny how she makes, you know, Janie makes a big deal about the age. And, you know, to, to Dr. Manhattan, it, it's really completely irrelevant. Then, of course, we get the, uh, the owl ship flying away on that that lower middle panel and then again on the bottom of page 17 that last panel it says while i'm standing still and there there again is dr manhattan standing on the panel you know it's in the lower left corner of that of that panel he's just a few paces away from where he dropped the photograph you can just see it in the corner of the image just to give you a perspective of when this is happening on mars going back to like that there is a present there is a there is a distinct timeline that we're following him in, and it's his trip on Mars, and so he's, we know where he is at this point. Moving on to, to page 18, where we get, you know, again, we talk about, you know, cinematic and how things play out. You know, I think this old, if this exchange makes it to the to the movie, um, where, you, you know, we see on one panel, you know, Laurie and, and, and Dr. Manhattan walking and talking, and then, you know, boom, we get a cut to, to Janie, you know, kind of airing, airing him out, and then we cut back to... Lori and Dr. Manhattan, and we cut, you know, it's just this back-and-forth cutting, um, you know, these edits, so to speak, you know, back-and-forth, really kind of give you that, that, that cinematic quality. Again. Then we get, on page 19, we get this real interesting, you know, revelation that, you know, here, here John was created, you know, back in 59, it's 1969, and he just hears about his father's death, and he, and he never, he never told him, what happened to him? You know, he never he never told his father, you know, what became of him or that he came back, you know, to life. Well, so it suggests from John's point of view he didn't actually die. He, as he puts it, I never correct their mistake. Right. You know, to him it was something that happened to him, but it wasn't it wasn't death. Maybe change, but you know, his son's accidental disintegration. Disintegration. I never correct their mistake. It's like no, I wasn't disintegrated. I I I went away for a while. In the center of uh, page 19, is that the woman that's in uh, Blake's lap? Is that the same one that comes back and gets him with the bottle? I imagine it is. That's my assumption. I think it is. I would get it. I don't see any reason to think it's not. Yeah, because in this spread, he, he's not scarred at all. He's, um, this this is, must be happening before, like during the Vietnam conflict. Well, this is March in 71. Right. Actually, before she cuts him. Apparently, it was on my, it was the day I was born or near the day I was born that Nixon asked him to go to, to Vietnam. I was born in January of 1971. So that's when Dr. Manhattan went to Vietnam, or was asked to go. But it's, um, let's see, that was March in 71 when he arrives in Vietnam. It's a month, it's only a month later, apparently, because it says in June, VVN, yeah, the next June, it's all, it's all been, uh, yeah, the next not a, month later, a few months later. Yeah, it's May, I've been here two months. The Viet Cong are expected to surrender within the week. Yep. 
the giant 50-foot-tall Dr. Manhattan that we've seen also. Another uh, image we've seen in the trailer. Another image, another image that we see earlier in the, in the book of uh, the comedian pulling his gun. Again, the exact same shot, the same frame, al- almost as if uh, Gibbons just simply reused the panel, which is probably exactly what he did, just with the different lettering, obviously. Yeah, then you know, with the flamethrower... You know, in the bottom of 19, that's in, that's the other image that we got coupled with the 150-foot-tall Manhattan. I need to go back and watch the trailer again. After every issue, I want to go and read, see the trailer again, see what new images I can pick out. And then again, we see, you know, here it is forward in time a little bit more, and here we see Dr. Manhattan, and he's wearing even less clothes than he was wearing, you know, before. The corner panel on 19, you can just about make out the comedian's sweat dripping off and hitting the button, you know, the smiley face button in that spot right in the spot and then you know we're back on page 20 where he's you know pointing down at the Viet Cong and you know they're all running away and here here we get this guy that's as big as a god and you know that's how the the Vietnamese end up seeing him they you know they look upon him as 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 a religious figure so he's you know again acting as a god you know making himself you know gigantic in size you know as as a almost like a god would appear and then we get the and notice that, you know, the war was ended in 1971. Then in October of 85, this is the moment where he's, he gets the idea he wants to create something, and uh, we'll find out what that is in a moment he can create something on Mars. Um, we find out that Ozymandias on 21, it's, he's, um, he's decided to retire, and he's revealed his name to the public, and um, we find out more about the genetic engineering that they've, um, and we've talked about before, things like the... Um, the, 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 the six-legged turkey, and apparently Ozzy's on the uh, the cutting edge of, of such technology. Bubastis, the, the links, the altered links, I should say. Genetically altered links. There's a, a panel on 21 that explains the airship thing that we noticed before, too. Yeah. Uh, I know John brought it up in one of the panels in one of the earlier issues about how there are airships everywhere. Um, this the, We finally get the explanation in this, uh, this issue. Oh, wow. I never picked that up. Yeah. And we owe it all to you to giving Doctor Manhattan the credit where credit's due. We, you know now they're only limited by their imaginations because whatever they don't have, he can create. And uh, he's gone from the, the tidy white, tidy blackies to the to a thong now. Apparently, I think that those two panels, too. the dialogue's kind of important. You know, they're only limited by their imaginations, and Doctor Manhattan says, and by their consciences, surely. And you have Adrian saying, "Let's hope so," but you can tell, you know, by the look on its face, his face, it's almost like you know. Oh no, I'm busted. You know, like yeah, you could tell that he already has all of the plans in motion, and yeah, Doctor Manhattan uh, poses the only true threat to him uh, getting his uh, plan off the ground. And then we see too in '75 that the Constitution was changed to allow presidents to run for uh, what I'm assuming is more than two terms, or not be limited to two terms. So again, another you know, another solidifying of how this this world is different from our own and how you know how much of a leap forward just one individual has been able to make on the world in between ending the war early between uh, making you know electric cars viable to you know almost like eugenics to airships you know everything is kind of leapt forward you know exponentially almost because of you know one accident i'm not sure is there a line in here talking about Nixon changing the, changing the Constitution, but is there a line, or is there somewhere in here, maybe I'm just imagining it, that 
did Dr. Manhattan stop uh, a burglary at what had the Watergate Hotel or anything like that? Did they address that at all? Oh, no, or the comedian took out Woodward and Bernstein. Is that what it was? I don't recall. I think there is a reference to that. I'm just kidding. I thought yeah. I, I read something about how that Watergate was dealt with, and I couldn't remember where I saw it. So I had seen that. Yeah, I think I think it, it's I – don't, I don't know that we've come to that yet for that. Okay. So on page 22, we forward on again to 1977 where there's been a police strike where police are – basically had enough of this whole costume adventurer thing and they've gone on strike and you know basically anarchy is erupting and, and it's almost like the people have turned against the the you know the quote-unquote heroes at this point because you know at least out in front of dc the people protesting are all pro-police you know they, they want the cops back now remember we talked about when dr manhattan teleported the entire studio audience and cameraman outside he had to get pretty worked up before he did that, or maybe he, he chose to go to that point. But here, he seems pretty calm and pretty collected and knows exactly what he's doing when he sends this entire crowd back to their homes or to somewhere. And, of course, like two people died in the process, but he seems fine with that, knowing that it's far less than what would have happened had they stayed. You know, but and this is what's happening uh, during uh, the same period of time that uh, Night Owl and the Comedian are, are stemming the tide in New York, right? I, I believe they refer yeah. to what they're doing or... Something to that effect. I think you're absolutely right on that. And then also, I like how he basically justifies his own actions. You know, here he is. He's teleported all these people, you know, back to where they belong. And then, you know, two people suffered a heart attack upon suddenly finding themselves indoors. And you know, he's like, eh, more. You know, basically, well, more people would have suffered if 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 I'd have let him go. So again, you know, some a negative consequence to what he does, but he still finds a way to justify it. Here's a reference when uh, Comedian and Night Owl are doing their thing. Night Owl's talking. John and Lloyd are handling the riots in Washington. So that's what we are seeing here. And then Rorschach's across town trying to hold the Lower East Side. And then on, on 23, where we go to August 3rd, 77, where the, the Keene Act has been passed. And vigilanteism is now illegal again, as it was before they altered the laws to accommodate strategically useful talents, such as myself. So it's right. basically... You know, it was vigilanteism was illegal. Then you know, Doctor Manhattan comes around, so they you know tweak the you know they basically make it okay you're, now you're, that you're not a vigilante if you're on the government payroll. Exactly, exactly. And there's our comedian with the gimp mask after he's freed the hostages from uh, from Iran. Yeah, you know, again another divergence. You know, instead of that, you know, here it is seventy. You know, when that seventy-seven when that takes place or or seventy-eight and. Uh, you know, in, in our world, it wasn't resolved until, you know, Reagan was sworn into office and, and they were let go. In this world, it's pretty much, you know, they send in the... It never even, never really becomes an issue. Yeah. We also see in more detail what happens to each of them at the end of uh, the Keen Act being passed. Uh, uh -huh. The comedian becoming like the official uh, government guy, Dryberg hanging it up, Rorschach saying he's never going to surrender. Yeah, the guy lays on the ground with, looks like a broken neck and a busted up leg. And then Lori, you know, the interesting thing for, is Lori, where, um, you know, she retires, and it's almost, I take it as, as she's relieved. You know, she gets to put put up the costume, and again, Manhattan makes the comment that her, you know, her mother is more disappointed than she is. You know, we saw with Hollis Mason's book that, you know, Lori, from his perspective, Lori, you know, was taking up in her mother's footsteps and, you know, was happy to do it, but, you know, Dr. Manhattan knows the truth, and it's not what she really wanted. It's just kind of what she, you know, what she fell into and what she did. She's just like uh, John Osterman in that her uh, parent drove her to 
what she did with her life. Mm-hmm. And b- both of it, I guess, was not what their parent wanted for them. I mean, l- Sally drove Lori into being a costume adventurer, and it's not what she really wanted to do. And John's father drove him into being a physicist, which is not really what he wanted to do. He would have been perfectly content with being a being a watchmaker. That's a really good point. And well, then, then if they're such kindred spirits, then what contributes to them being so dysfunctional? Is it just John? No, I don't think so. I I, I think I think they both just have a lot of baggage and just kind of got to that point. But Dan and Lori have a bunch of baggage too. Yeah, but I don't see Dan as having as much. John's becoming a god, and and Lori's disenfranchised with uh, the life that her mother chose for her. So, I mean, I could totally see where their paths would diverge. Right, and who's who's more human than Dan? You know, the aging, retired guy with no powers. You know, and John is going in the opposite direction. And then again, we get more allusions to to time covered in Time magazine with the with the the watch on it. Again, the watch that was broken by the fat man. Different watch, different fat man. <laughs> is this the fat man from Casablanca, or is that somebody else? That was Sydney Greenstreet. Never mind. And the hands touching too, hands frozen, both on the watch and on the the hands okay. frozen yep. against the uh, the beer. Uh-huh. Again, last panel of the page having that double meaning. We see more scenes, more flashbacks of things we've already read. We you know finding out of Rorschach's death, the funeral scene, you know, crushing Lori's face, and then her ultimately leaving, ultimately leaving. And, of course, the attack on John at the uh, TV studio. You know what? I just noticed something. And you see how Lori just basically has that uh, like birthmark or beauty mark on her face? Yeah. Do you think that's like supposed to be, supposed to be like vi- uh, visually alliterative of the, uh, the, the smiley face with the schmutz on it? Huh. Well, I never thought of that. No. Yeah. And the hands on, the fa- on her face, like the hands on the face of a clock? I mean, we keep seeing layers upon layers of stuff here, and we keep saying nothing's here by accident, so I don't know. It definitely could be. I'm trying to think of other reasons to just arbitrarily give her a birthmark. It's interesting because Dr. Manhattan's looking at Moloch, too, on page 25. Um, in other words, he's hip to Moloch's game, which, I mean, and we had talked about how in the world could Moloch get away with it. Well, Dr. Manhattan knew, in which case he also knows about Rorschach and that Rorschach's going to go investigate Moloch, too, from issue two. And I just want to say something real quick on 22. It's interesting that when John makes the crowd, uh, you know, disappear and everyone flies off the, all out all over the place, um, and right in front of the White House, too, because uh, who's the last person we saw with the picket sign, which was Rorschach? Going back to the birthmark, I just flipped back, and um, Sally has the birthmark in the same spot. Hmm. Her mom. Hey, also on 25, they remembered to color John uh, dark blue. For the, when he's TV, in the TV show. Studio. Right. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think in the last panel, one of those same, you know, the, 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 the letter in the text goes with the scene, I, and I'm gone, and he is, in fact, gone from, from the desert and at the base. So what's the best explanation that you guys could think of that he goes to Mars for? I mean, Mars in particular. I think it's close. It's still not that the environment matters to him, but it's still warm you can see the earth but the, it, it's quiet it's it's solid it's, it's 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 what's that i was going to say unreachable but, you know by other people certainly it's reachable by him um it's probably the only planet that has a a surface that can be walked on i think the sand and what he's going to create in the next two pages you know turning the sand into glass is exactly what he needs for what he wants to accomplish why leave it's the solitude of peace why mars could be any reason i don't know that 
he said he's left to create something. I don't even know if he's sure what he's creating. But also, I think part of it is that he feels like that maybe there's some truth to the fact he's giving cancer to everyone around him. And maybe the isolation is part of the reason why he goes. Mm-hmm. You're right. He doesn't. I don't, he, when you say you're not sure if he even he even knows what he's creating, he even states as much. You know, is he creating this or was it already there? Kind of like the sculptor sculptor who says, who says, I didn't create that. I just took away the extra bits. And two, maybe that's you know the next kind of the next stop for mankind from a space exploration standpoint. I mean, you know, we've been we've been to we've been to the moon. You know, the next the next step for us as a, as space explorers would be Mars. I mean, that's where we would go next. So maybe he's just kind of getting there before before we do. We don't learn about where on Mars he created his his castle, his tower, if you will. But it's kind of funny where we end up seeing his castles being made. And it's the, the, when we we get to twenty six and twenty seven for the from panel four on, it's the panel, you know, size, the, the panel layout is almost identical as far as how it's laid out on the page, and the image of Manhattan is, is in the same spot. So, again, you get this, he's, he's kind of floating in space, just, you know, just kind of patiently sitting, you know, he's not moving, he's not twitching, he's not fidgeting, he's just calmly sitting there making all this stuff happen around him. Willing this to emerge. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, John Stewart, right, from Green Lantern, um, I remember in Rebirth, like, um, Jeff Johns made it a point to say that when John, an architect, right, um, puts some of his constructs together that, you know, he he makes every little piece connect here and there. Whereas, in opposite to that, um, Dr. Manhattan, I mean, I don't really feel that anything's being built as much as it is being revealed. In other words, it's already taken care of and it's already constructed in his mind. It's fixed. It's always been there, just like himself in the timeline. The pieces look like watch pieces, though. I mean, the different radii uh, coming out of it almost look like the watch hands, and then the, it looks like a gear. Uh, the round parts look like the gears of a watch. Oh, yeah, that's so, not, not by accident at all. Right, well, that's probably he, a subconscious coming through, you know. Well, he makes the statement on the top of 26 where he says, gone to a place without clocks, without seasons, without hourglasses. And what does he make this fortress out of? It's basically made out of watch pieces and hourglasses. I mean, you can look at... You know, when you see the top of twenty-seven, it's it's the it looks just like an hourglass. His balcony is an hourglass, exactly. And, and, sand, and then really. at the bottom, at the bottom of twenty-seven, the you know the 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 base of the structure is like hourglasses put on their side. Hmm. And, and as Adam said, the entire thing is made of sand. Yeah. Now let me ask That's you guys this: um, throughout the course of Watchmen, is this construct actually called anything? I mean, in fandom or in the book, or otherwise. Is this actually called anything, or is this just uh, John's little <laughs> finger-painting gone crazy? I'm, I'm not aware of it being given any kind of formal name or designation. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading it for the first time and expecting it to be something of huge importance at some point, you know, but it never really is. We see it again, but I was expecting more rather than just his finger painting gone wild. Yeah, I mean, especially since basically he spent the entire issue lining himself up to to build it. And then, you know, again, this is another piece that I think once the movie comes out, this is just, you know, we've seen a lot of it in the trailer, but this is just be an awesome spectacle to see, to see on the big screen. 
I was just going to say, they'd be really foolish not to have that in the movie, you know, verbatim, you know, pretty much frame by frame, watch it rise out of the sand like that. I mean, it just looks so cinematic the, with the widescreen panels, uh, the way it is in the book. It's almost like a storyboard for the movie. But other than being his, for lack of a better description, his fortress of solitude, you know, is it ever anything more than that? I mean, or is that simply just his purpose? Is it, is it a place for him to, to contemplate his godhood? Well, it is a Mount Olympus if it's anything. Yeah. It's an honest-to-God fortress of solitude because he's the only one on the planet. But as, as John asked, does it have any other function, significance, or consequence to the rest of, of Earth? Maybe it's just like the painting he saw. It's art for art's sake. If he can do it, why shouldn't he do it? Like when he was looking at the Dolly painting. It's almost like he built something to kind of put him in perfect, you know, position to see the you know the, this meteor storm that's that's going on. Yeah, or like see the forest for the trees, or some kind of extended metaphor like this. He says this on the last panel, twenty-eight. Um, above the Notice Gordai Mountains, where we in like uh, Middle Earth or something, uh, jewels. In a makerless mechanism, the first meteorites are starting to fall. I think that's really cool, um, makerless mechanism, like, like this kind of idea of a natural world. And that actually borders on the idea of um, 18th century deism. Um, ben Franklin, a, a lot of the other founders of the country were deists, in which, in which case the best way I can explain deism is um, they believe in a religion, which John doesn't. And that's where, that's where this uh, analogy stops. But uh, deists believe that God exists that God is more or less like a great clockmaker, which kind of ties into Watchmen. God is a great clockmaker. God has wound the clock up, but he has left the clock to tick and whatnot on its own. In other words, there's no direct hand, divine intervention, divine right of kings, or anything like that. Um, the clock simply ticks. It's a, it's a mechanism. But John kind of counters this in saying it's a makerless one, which I think was a real kind of a weird twist on deism. And I want to apologize to all our deist listeners out there. Well, that would make total sense with the uh, the title of this issue, uh, Watchmaker, because he's becoming the the watchmaker. He's becoming the god in that philosophy, right? It's weird, too, because like if you look at creation myths, or if you look at um, Christianity, if you look at Judaism, um, the idea of, you know, well, especially with Christianity... And even in some cases with like pagan influence for religious studies, that the idea of God is something that's not necessarily always omnipotent um, or um, infallible. Because even Christ on the cross had his doubts. If you look at the um, if you look at Christian mythology, but the kind of like the the, the um, radioactive spider bite, right? That Doctor Manhattan gets in the chamber. Like there's no real, I don't know call to arms or call to action that he gets, I don't think at least, um, when he gets his powers. So if you take the superhero uh, mythos and if you take the um, Christ-like figure, godhood figure mythos and you put those together, John really doesn't fit that rubric. He doesn't really fit those standards of hero, and I think that's why he's such a terribly ineffective hero. Well, the role of hero was never... His goal, at least not from the outset, I mean, that was something thrust upon him, like so many of his choices, as he alluded to, moves were made for him. It was the, it was the government who recruited him or hired him or simply, you know, uh, drafted him into service. Right, it what wasn't... I'm saying is, right, Ken, because the assumption that he is a hero is doesn't fit in line with how he became to be who he was. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
you know, Luke's, Luke's aunt and uncle get killed. Okay, well, there's your call to action, you know. So he doesn't have anything that has deeply affected him as such, which is why he's not, why he is the most maybe fallible character in here, you know? That's why it doesn't work, because he's not the right guy. Plus, he's, um, I mean, he's not even implemented as a hero from the, from the government standpoint or as he's used. He's used more as like a weapon of mass destruction or just a deterrent rather than an actual hero, hero, you know. That's, that's really what they wanted him for, for that, uh, you know, that uniform deterrent. presence, that, that deterrent, as you say. Yeah, he's, he's more of a deterrent. And the greatest weapon is a weapon you don't have to fire. Exactly. Or the one you only have to fire once. Once, exactly. So the next section is the first prose piece we get that's not related to Hollis Mason's Under the Hood autobiography, but it is another written piece by Milton Glass, who was the actual professor director at Gila Flats when when John first showed up um, at that facility. And uh, it's an interesting image on the cover where we get, you know, the, the image of, of Manhattan and the hydrogen symbol, and he's positioned like the uh, Da Vinci, what is that, the Vitruvian man? Is that is that Vitruvian male, yeah. Yeah. Within, and then at the bottom we get kind of the stars and stripes on one side and then the Russian... Um, Sickle and hammer, you know, in the other panel, which are you know the two the two big powers in the Cold War. So this piece is just more like a an essay on Manhattan and you know what he brings to the table, um, and and you know kind of how he's a you know, pretty much how he's a game changer. Um, he makes some points about how the Second World War we told was the war to end wars and the. The atomic bomb is the weapon to end wars, and then he refers to to, to John to, to Doctor Manhattan as the man to end worlds. So it's like you know again we get this escalation you know and justification you know for what's going on. And then they they bring up the point too about how um, you know they, they say the Superman exists and he's American. You know they 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 make a big point, and that was even in the in the book earlier. But but in in this world that 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 phrase or that you know battle cry almost gets is carried forward and and permeated everywhere that you know that's how he's seen. And I love how he goes on to say that that's not in fact what he said. That's just how he was quoted. But what he actually said was God exists and he's an American. Yeah. And if that statement starts to chill you, then don't be alarmed. It just means you're still sane. You know, and that's. What it, I, how, I don't think it explains how it got reinterpreted as Superman, but he saw what Dr. Manhattan really was or really could be. I like the point he makes a little further on, too, uh, where he says, uh, it's as if with a real-life deity on our side, our leaders have become intoxicated with a heady draft of omnipotence by association. So that really explains why the, advent- the Americans were so adventurous, you know, going into Vietnam and taking it over in just a few months, you know, um, just very expansionist as opposed to what really happened. Well, what do they really have to fear when they have Dr. Manhattan? And, and if you remember the fear that they had when he left, you know, they suddenly realized that, wait a minute, you know, the big dog we had on a chain in the yard just ran away, and now we have no protection. Excellent point. And he's cool. He's cool. You know, he's cool to like. Uh, you know, talk about. But do you guys like Doctor Manhattan? I mean, he's just like a pencil neck geek, fake poet bedwetter, in my opinion. Seriously, Mama's boy. 
more of a device than a person, like almost like a literary device that Moore is using to expound on bigger questions rather than a fully developed character. He's kind of a cipher. Yeah, I think he's more of a mystery than a, you know, than a character that you can relate to. Um, I definitely like Owl Man better, um, maybe because it makes me think of Hooters. But, you know, and even Rorschach, I mean, he's a mystery too, but there's a little more fun to him. He's snapping necks and uh, causing mayhem, so he's a little more interesting. He's just John. wacky and crazy. Right. There's, a da- there's, a, there's an element of danger to him. I know that they're hitting home the point that Dr. Manhattan can do anything, but gosh, how boring is that? Look what, what, what a stick in the mud he is. I mean, ugh. I think for, for me, it's more the journey. This is the character we kind of see more of a journey with, you know, from, from kind of beginning to end and, and a lot of focus with. So it's almost like him, you know, him as a character or him as a, as a hero may not be too interesting, but to me the journey the character takes and how he weaves in and out through everybody else's stories and, and throughout history to me is what makes either him or his, his depiction interesting. Right. This issue in general... We know where it goes, so it's it's great to look back and fill in the dots with this issue. But if totally. this came, if this came out today, you know, I could see the threads just blowing up about how this isn't going anywhere. Oh yeah. You know, again, you know. After, oh god, yeah. Yeah, I mean, after finishing it, we know now how this stuff becomes important. But you know, the first time around, I'm sure this was not considered the best of the. First four issues. And I just, I was, just, I just read uh, two months worth of Trinity in like one night, and I had a ball reading it. But I can see how going with somebody reading it week to week would be like, "Come on, already, let's see what's going on in this book." I could see that as well, especially considering not only was it only twelve issues, but it was, I guess, especially near the end, it was late more often than not. If you think about, you know, when this was written, story decompression was not a big thing. You know, you didn't see these stories play out over 12 issues at this pace. I mean, I guess, you know, we had crisis, um, you know, but even even still there was, you know, issues where there was just a ton of stuff going on. But in general, you know, most most stories were either one and done or maybe, you know, over a three to four issue arc or they would, you know, touch upon something for a couple issues, you know, go away for a few issues and then come back. So, you know, to see, you know, this kind of decompression going on, you know, 20 you know, 23 years ago, 22 years ago, um, to me, like I said, I didn't read it at the time, but I imagine that that had to have been a pretty big deal. It was. It was like uh, nothing else I'd ever read before uh, when it came out. And I remember really being expectant of each issue, thinking, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes you walk into a movie and in the first 15 minutes you know exactly what's going to happen through the entire movie. And then other times you walk into a movie and you have no idea what's going to happen from moment to moment. Watchmen was more like the, the latter for me as it came out from month to month. I had no idea where it was going, where it was ultimately going to end until issue 12, you know. Yeah. Do you know what I mean when I say when the Dark Knight came out over the summer and we saw the trailer, the trailer didn't give anything away. And I don't think the Watchmen trailer does that either. And I think, Jim, a lot of people are going to be shocked that, well, shocked, okay, maybe put off, maybe shocked, maybe uh, invigorated, or maybe even uh, riotous about where this movie goes at the end. Yeah, and that, you know, not to get too much into that, that that's kind of where I'm gearing my discussion topic for issue 12. 
Um, and I think that'll be, instead of having the discussion topic at the beginning of the episode for that one, I think that'll be the end. Um, we'll, we'll push it to the end. Um, but that whole, the way this ends and, and how that's going to reflect on the movie, um, I, I find, I, I'm curious to see what everybody else thinks because I have my own opinions on, on how I feel about how this ended mm-hmm. and, and what, you know, what that's going to mean, you know, for the movie. All right. What do you guys think? We wrapped up? Yeah. Sounds like we are a third. We're a third of the way there. All right, you Mac, take us home since you were part time of this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, thank you once again to Brad and Frank from a half hour Folks, make sure you are listening 100% every episode, every blinking moment, every moment of your waking life to A Half Hour Wasted. Um, you can find the Legion of Dudes at the Half Hour Wasted feed. Please, please, please visit us at thecomicforums.com. Leave some notes about our upcoming uh, one-shot next week, which I'll be your host on. We're going to be doing the Umbrella Academy uh, next Sunday, so we'll put a forum thread up for the Umbrella Academy. We'll also put a forum thread up for Watchmen issue number five, so we can hear all of your comments on there. Otherwise, you can send us an email to comments at legionofdudes.com. Guys, awesome episode once again. Final thoughts? If you're in the Pittsburgh area, October 24th or 25th, come by and see the Legion of Dude, which will be me, at the Steel City Con at the uh, Pittsburgh Expo Mart. Come meet Lou Ferrigno, Ray Park, Richard Keel, a lot of cool people. And me, we'll be giving away stuff and uh, CDs of our shows, all kinds of good promotional materials. So come on by and say hi. Nice. Awesome. We did it. That's a wrap. Awesome job. Guys, thanks for listening. Everybody, awesome job. Good, good deal. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night. <laughs>